Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Over the course of these two seasons of On Opinion, we've looked at opinions through the lens of philosophy, of social science, anthropology, psychology, evolutionary psychology, even neurobiology. But there is one huge area we've ignored, which is feeling. The idea that our opinions might also come from a place of emotion. That just as we can know things by thinking them through, we can also know things by feeling them. So for this last episode of Series 2, we're giving you a double bill on emotions. We have Professor Jonathan Schklar and Dr. Omar Khalif, and with them we'll be looking at both how emotions shape our thoughts, but also at how moments in history have their own particular landscape of feeling that can impact all of us who live there. Thank you for listening. Today we're thrilled to be talking to Omar Khalif. Omar is uh, a friend of mine and has just recently curated a show at the Sharjah Art Foundation in the UAE. It's actually where he's the director of collections and a senior curator there. But the show that, he, um, that he's just put on was called Art in the Age of Anxiety. Um, beautiful book produced the, on the back end of the exhibition, which I'll link to uh, in the show notes. But I was struck by this idea that we live in an age of anxiety. For one, it talks to a notion that I adore, which is that we live in what William Reddy called emotional regimes that history isn't charted only through economics or politics. We don't just live in the Elizabethan age or the age of the Great Depression, uh, the economic depression. We live in in emotional epochs too. Um, And um, I like that, obviously, because as we continue to look at where our opinions come from, um, this idea that we have to think of those opinions also as the children of a particular time, animated by particular feelings and concerns, uh, helps us understand what opinions are made of. So that on the one hand, and on the other hand, perhaps because we've been locked down, pretty much all of us for a year now, I I was also struck by the idea that anxiety should be the dominant note of our time. So that's why I've asked Omar to join us to help us work through some of these ideas. Omar, thanks so much for being with us. It's, It's lovely to be here, but I'm very disappointed, I must say, because you've articulated almost verbatim, the first few things I was going to say. (laughs) We're going to have to disagree Um, very fast then. We'll come up with something new. Um, Omar, let's let's kick off though by by trying to ask what this thing is, this idea of an 
age. Can we define an age? Is there a purpose in defining this notion of an age of whatever it may be, whether it's anxiety or, um, or, or anything else? Well, you, 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 when you were introducing this session, you made a very in interesting point that is actually quite controversial, which is that what does it mean to think of an age as opposed to uh, in relation to uh, colonialism or imperialism or uh, the notion of a reign, but actually to think of it from an emotional perspective, which is actually like to actually say a biological thing, the idea of a feeling. And I the concept of an age, you know, I'm a historian and the way that we look at, look at the world is it's supposed to be all neat chunks, but the reality of course is that that is not the case. And an age essentially is something that began with an event and ended with one. But as we all know, the notion of an age has shifted so much since we've been alive. So to go from the ice age, which is a, a kind of environmental thing that lasted for thousands of years, which is in the realm of the scientific, to the Stone Age, the Iron Age, prehistory, these notions that are actually really fueled by a notion of economic progress, then into things such as the Victorian Age, the First World War, the Second World War. Uh, these are things that actually use what I call memory crevices, which are kind of ruptures or pieces of violence in memory to try and create solidarity around a moment in history. So, for example, the Great Depression can be used as a, a moment to induce a feeling that then creates a sense of pride around those who survived that that horrible epoch but the re but the reason i think that we talk about ages is for because of one purpose and it's called the age of enlightenment which is my least favorite age because <laughs> that is a, a, an epistemic violent eurocentric notion of what later was to become the modern age and it argued for rationality. It argued that for, for not for reason, but for rationality. And rationality is literally the exact opposite of what the world that we live in today, which is a world that is fueled by heightened emotion, by the concept of anxiety in all of its forms and manifestations, the way that we consume and engage with the world. It's not about rationality, but yet, we are expected in the workplace, whether it's remote or not, whether you are in a situation where you're executing or operating with in the field of governance or legality to exercise rationality. And if you don't, you're seen as what Freud once called his, the, the hyster hysterical uh, subject and which was used in the late 19th century as a mechanism by which to put down, for example, women, people of color, and those from socioeconomic backgrounds that didn't fit into the neat fold of the landed gentry. So I'm very against the concept of um, the way ages have been historically defined, and I'm really for this new idea that actually we as citizens should take back this idea of how we construct the age, not the historians, but actually we collectively create almost a manifesto about what the age of now looks and feels like. And feels like is the kind of pivotal world, word here. But of course, for an age to exist, it needs to exist for lots of people. I'm struck again by um, another kind of age, which is literally about 
age. We talk about generations. We talk about baby boomers and Gen Xs and millennials and Gen Zs on the assumption that there's a lived experience that's shared by a large group of people and it makes sense to bundle them together into that lived experience. So that we're talking in terms of generations. But now, when you describe the age of anxiety, the point has to be surely that it is a dominant emotional note felt by lots of people. So how do you go about figuring that out? How do you go about figuring it out, testing up those ideas and also articulating it? Basically, the concept of thinking of an age of emotion or a time of emotion is really about deterritorializing it from any specific place, because that I think is uh, is 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 not reflective of the fact that we are all interconnected at this particular point. And I think the way that uh, one of the things that I'm working on now is a kind of manifesto for the age of anxiety. What what are its constituent parts and what what are the rules uh, that define or or make up this period? The the difference between an emotional age and uh, one that is demarcated by simply a historical event or simply uh, a, a, a political event or a social event is that it actually takes into account the whole physical body of the individual. And it considers this concept of feeling, emotion and affect, which is actually why I was interested to talk to you because I felt that when we talk about opinion and the fact that in an age of the digital that none of our opinions are really our own because they're constantly coming through through so many fields of vision that actually it's true that perhaps intellectually we may be seduced into thinking that we know more than that we, than we know or engaging in certain things that we don't or beliefs that we don't necessarily understand but you cannot deny the express part of an emotion. And what does it mean when an emotion ripples across geographies and expanses and lots of people start to feel the same way and then start sharing those emotions? Okay, so your conjecture here is that at some point with the arrival of the platforms and the proliferation of what people have called fake news, we enter into a new kind of epoch, which is defined by emotion. An example of this would be the Black Lives Matter movement, which you'd articulate, you'd suggest, is qualitatively different from previous protest movements we've seen in the past, including, for example, the Arab Spring, because the visuals mm. and the emotions around it are of a different kind of quality. Is that right? So help me understand what is different, say, between the Black Lives Matter protest movement and the Arab Spring. I mean, I'm an Egyptian. I was in Tahrir Square during the first 18 days of the Egyptian revolution. My grandfather actually passed away in those first 18 days in the square uh, after an event happened there. And it was an incredibly important visual moment in terms of thinking about the capacity potentially for social media to create a platform that could elicit change. But my, my, the way that I have kind of looked at that in, in my writing is that there was a very much a kind of flattening of, of, of that historical moment in that there was very little expression of the singular individual, the singular voice speaking out. While, for example, and, and also beyond that, those were 
protests that were about claiming space, public space, against injustice, but there was no plan or let's call it manifesto that they wanted to necessarily arrive to because it was such a fragmented group without a mission. So Black Lives Matter obviously existed many years before the death of George Floyd during the pandemic. And what I think is very different is here, the singular act and let it be known that, you know, I lived in South Los Angeles at a time when the Rodney King events happened. And, and, and this is something that I've watched and we've all watched black bodies be destroyed and those not be persecuted. But here, an image of a single being was able to foster a visual culture that cut through and across every class of being so rapidly that you wake up one morning, you don't even know, I didn't even know about George Floyd's death or who he was, and all I see is black squares on Instagrams and people's uh, um, names change to in solidarity with black life. And then what that then propelled was also a mobilization movement because the numbers are also a lot more in terms of the social media penetration that exists now from in, in those 10 years. It's much, it's a much larger one. It's a much more visual one. Think about Twitter versus Instagram. Instagram is a much, is a visual medium. Twitter was originally about 140 characters was what it was originally intended to be a, a kind of authorial platform. So what we're seeing is a, a different kind of visuality emerge that is intended to spur mass emotion emotional reaction, so much so that even in the midst of a global pandemic that had killed all these hundreds of thousands of lives at that point, it was creating protests in the streets in countries all over the world. Of course, the US being the predominant uh, exemplar in that case, but literally going to the state capital and recarving and renaming streets and lobbying in a time when you know, people should say, well, we need to focus on the pandemic now. And here, the, the thing was, you have made us consider the notion of a life. Essentially, the Arab Spring was a catalytic series of events that were not interconnected, that were not con done in, cons in consortium with each other. It was literally a ripple fire. And there was no feeling in so much as it was not about an individual life or the notion of a life. Yet what the death of George Floyd is representative of is a black life matters. It is about literally thinking about the embodiment of what it means to be oppressed. What it means to be a person that has feelings, that might have mental illnesses, that might have been on drugs, that might have had all sorts of things, but you should not persecute that person. What you did was unjust. And so that the way it is manifested is actually through a public trial that has folded out from social media into a much broader mainstream media where we're actually seeing what is a cultural shift whereby, you know, those who murdered Rodney King were not persecuted. We will see what happens now. But the idea is that the people here will be, will be persecuted and that that will continue to be the case. Now, of course, the difference in that and the problematic of that example is the Arab uprisings that began late 2010 
you know, those still are formerly colonized countries that are complicated in their media structures. You know, there was a day when Mubarak switched off the internet, as it were. This is happening in the West. This is happening in the free world. Uh, this is happening in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where there is a First Amendment right uh, to speak out. So it, that's where it becomes quite difficult. But what is interesting is that you can hear a single human being is used to anchor the notion of identity in and of itself. It's a, it becomes about race. It becomes about what a kind of what does a certain kind of man of a certain kind of height and color of a skin make you feel? Watching footage of a person in a shop acting unusually, how does that make you feel? I mean, I've never seen so much body cam footage in my life. What does it mean to see a man, any man, kneeling on someone's neck and to see that expression on their face circulate in that manner? And it's a really much, it's, it's almost as if the Arab Spring was like a wide shot and this is a close-up. And when you get to the close-up, as we know in cinema, that's when the true effective moment happens between the audience and the subject because the gaze becomes, you know, in, in, in a psychoanalytic term to, in, to invoke someone like Laura Mulvey, that's when the emotional transference happens, that recognition um, of self in the other. So that's how I differentiate them. Omar, you've described this age as one of anxiety. How do you see that anxiety? Where do you see it? Well, I think that, to be quite frank, I believe that the age of anxiety is essentially code for an age of mental instability and mental illness of a sort, in that our antiquated brains were not crafted to deal with the sheer visuality pressures and frameworks of existence that are here now. And what that creates is in some people it can manifest as true mental disorders from, you know, a, a, a qualified psychiatric disorder. But there is a broader sense of actually what uh, political scientist Will Davis called, which is a constant feeling that we are all living in a nervous state. And he begins, Will Davis wrote this book called Nervous States a, a few years ago now, and he began it with an anecdote that I remember very clearly, which actually I should pay tribute to him in this moment, in that he talks about this moment when this, let's call him B-list pop star, Olly Murs, was in Selvages and tweeted that there was a bomb attack on Selvages. It went on Twitter. It went quite wild. People were going manic and crazy in the shop. Uh, a part of the street was very quickly shut down and it spread to news media. And in that introduction, I remembered myself having heard that. I got really anxious, not because I feared there was a bomb, because I didn't care about that. My anxiety was that it would be someone of a Muslim name or an Arab name because I would then be racially profiled in the street and then I would be afraid to leave my house. And so, but what he's kind of positing there is that the way that, that information flows so quickly, and it links back to the concept of being allowed to spread fake news and not actually be kind of held up for it. You know, that person is, still exists and has not been, uh, I don't know, cancelled, as it were, um, is that we ingest so much information, and with that, we are so much aware of the different consequences that a singular event can create for us. 
and that makes us all feel very unstable all the time. And really, for me, the age of anxiety begins from this idea of thinking of a life where every opinion and every decision is formed through what is gathered by, from a headline in an RSS feed. It's the fact that we are emotionally affected by these things. We start to fear all of these little fragments of information. And if we think of, in my case, my grandparents' generation who are no longer alive, in our lifetime, it is a known fact that according, well, it is a known fact that could be me using a Facebook reference, right? But according to various data sets, we, in our, our generation, from generation Z, Y, and X, are potentially, if we are like you and me, people who spend eight to 12 hours on our phone a day or on our laptop, consuming three times as much visual and written data than they would have consumed in their lifetimes in a day. Now, that's not an across-the-board example, but... My grandfather never had a computer, never had a phone. He only went to libraries. He only wrote pen to paper. He watched the news for half an hour, and that was it. But imagine a world where literally from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you close them, there is data being literally funneled into you. Omar, we've gone through this idea that an age exists and that there is a structural difference, qualitative difference mm. between an economic or political age and an emotional one. Mm. We've asked who gets to define the age and mm. how many people does it need to feel it for it mm. to be real. We've talked about how anxiety plays out and how, um, how anxiety manifests itself in this very particular digital environment in which we all mm. exist. How do we fix it? What's your manifesto to... Um, to yes. fix this age of anxiety, to get us out of it? Well, my argument is that we don't need to fix anything. We just need to know how to handle it. I believe that in a time and an age of anxiety, that every rational decision that we make needs to be measured up against the emotional impact that it creates. That we need to accept in the age of anxiety that we may always be wrong. And I think that's really important because essentially, I have an opinion, you have an opinion, that's fine. But the only way to end conflict, and I'm talking about conflict from at every level, is to be able to admit that you were wrong. Doesn't mean that you're not smarter than the other person. It just means that in that instance, you messed up. And because how do we move on otherwise? Yeah, no, it turns, I, I fully agree. And I think one of the things which is super hard and super valuable is learning to deal with ambiguous evidence. Um, and to, to yeah. that, that comfort with uncertainty is, um, I think, one of the trickiest things to build into a culture. And a culture at a moment of stress, economically, pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for joining us. We're over the moon to be talking to Jonathan Sklar. Jonathan's an independent psychoanalyst, a fellow at the British Psychoanalytical Society. He was on the board of the International Psychoanalytic Association and is chair of the Independent Psychoanalysis Trust. He is most recently the author of Dark Times, which looks at the rise of nationalism and the return of totalitarian parties in Europe, as well as the rise of the alt-right and white supremacy, 
all from a psychoanalytic perspective. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Sorry, I'm delighted for this opportunity. I'm looking forward to this. I am too. Um, Jonathan, we with this podcast on opinion are interested in where opinions come from. And we've looked at them from almost all perspectives, how we inherit them, how they form part of our culture. We've looked at them from an evolutionary perspective. We've looked at the biological causes behind some of our behaviors. We've looked at our cognitive processes, our psychological motivations, the emotions that drive our engagement with the world and our understanding of it. But today what we want to do is to take a different approach and to look at what psychoanalysis can teach us about politics, about the arc of history, and about how we build our values. We couldn't be in better hands than with Jonathan here. Jonathan, can I ask, as a starter, for you to help us understand what psychoanalysis is? Psychoanalysis, as I'm sure is well known, was discovered by Freud um, about one person listening to the unconscious of another person and about having a dialogue together, which is very different from any other dialogue in terms of um, teaching or friendship. Roy's idea early on was one was sitting in a railway carriage looking out of the window and he was looking at the different vistas as the train went on. And that was what the patient was asked to say, whatever is in your mind, just describe it, whether you think it's uh, important, uh, of interest, utterly irrelevant, or the thing you don't even want to talk about. The invitation is to do that. And Freud's point was that if you actually do that, you will find yourself in a place you never expected to be in, both the analysand and the analyst. And that might be a very interesting place to be, albeit one that might be full of uh, torrid matters. Can I ask you, how does a psychoanalyst think of nationalism? When you look at, when you look at the rise of nationalism in, say, Hungary, or the rise of the Rassemblement National in France, or whatever it might be, what's your psychoanalyst's response, diagnostic? <laughs> I suppose I am interested in, in the rise of hatred. You know, in many, many countries in Europe, there's uh, a considerable rise in uh, anxiety and tension and people hating other people. Um, there's far less debate going on. Things quickly settle into an us and them, as if um, you know, nationalism comes from the nation state. You know, in medieval times, you know, the nation state had a boundary around it, um, Mainly it was about um, cities that sprung up, which were perceived as being where civilization was, civitas. If you go 50 miles out into the countryside, that's dark. That's where the mythology is that there are, are monsters there in the dark, because that's not civilization. The civilization is in, is in uh, the castle. Um, or the civilization is in uh, the country with its defenses. We've always been an island, so we've got these wonderful island defenses. Well, it doesn't help us very much these days. In fact, you know, a line uh, of demarcation you know, uh, down, down the water is causing 
irreparable harm to uh, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, the UK and the EU. Um, there's a, a fantasy, if you like, drawing a line in the water to say, well, this is where our demarcation is and how upsetting that is just as a fantasy structure to the actual people. I suppose I'm also interested in how, in terms of memory getting lost, things getting buried, um, I'm not surprised that um, racism and anti-Semitism are hugely on the rise. Let's keep it in Europe for the moment. Um, Nazis are on the rise in Europe. I mean, what's happened? Did they go away? No, I don't think they ever did go away. I think they went deep. They went deep underground. They held on to their Nazi ideas in the silence. And they're now coming up into the sunshine. Why is that happening now? I think because uh, there's a fragmentation of um, the holding uh, uh, of the society by its leadership. For, for my book, I, I went to Oslo to have a, uh, an event to talk about dark times. And um, my friend who arranged it said, um, I'm very happy we've got the anti-fascist league on the door. I said, what? Oh, yes, because you know, there are Nazis in, in Oslo. You know, we don't want them to come in. So I was really quite uh, astonished. Anyway, it was time to start. There was several seats left. So I, I, I told my friend, well, there's some people at the door. They haven't got tickets, but can't they come in? So she, she said yes. And to my astonishment, at some point, uh, uh, a man put his hand up to ask a question. He said, I don't think the Holocaust happened. And he said something else. And my mind went blank. I couldn't hear what he said. And then I took another question. And then suddenly I sort of realized what had been said. And I went back to him and said, well, if you had said that in either Germany or the UK, that would be called hate speech and you'd be prosecuted. And to my amazement, in the room, there was a furore. No, we don't have that. Anyone can say anything in Norway. And that was interesting because um, after um, the murder of all those young young um, socialists. Anders Bretvig, yeah. Yeah. Um, what Parliament, the Norwegian Parliament did in a way to stymie Brett, Bretvig was um, to say, well, you can say anything. I mean, quite the opposite of the UK and Germany and say it, they do. So I disagreed with several people in the room saying, um, you know, it's not to be discussed that there was, uh, there was or there wasn't a, a Holocaust or concentration camps because this is like fake news. He came up to me afterwards and thanked me very much for um, the discussion. I don't quite know what that means, but there I was meeting a Nazi. Um, yeah. So I suppose the question I'm trying to ask is, I think it's, he's called William Reddy, had this notion of emotional regimes. He had this idea that there were periods in history which have a certain emotional quality to them. Sunshine Reagan, for example, um, sort of the yes we can Barack Obama, um, clearly we're in an age of rage, 
today um, and have been for, a, for have been for a while. If epochs have emotions and your work is in emotion, how I suppose the question I'm coming to is this, the rise of racism, the rise of authoritarianism. Where do you ascribe it? Where do you where do you see it from that micro human to the macro social? Okay, I've got a thought about some of the things that need to be done. I think that in the rage, and I agree with you, I think we are in uh, an age of rage, which is terribly worrying for all sorts of things. Um, there is no sense of mourning. You know, people are in a state of rage because something's been lost, something's missing, something's wrong. Um, I'll give you a, a little example. Outside many courthouses in many little towns in, um, in the, the south states of the US, um, outside those courthouses, there's usually a big tree. And the tree is really quite old. It's been there for a long time, a couple of hundred years. And on that tree, um, black bodies were hanging, as in that famous jazz song. I would like to see uh, a plaque put up on those trees with the names of all the, all the black people who were hung there. And they carried on hanging them you know, well into the 20th, the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, as a place that um, the grandchildren of some of those people are probably still living in those little towns can see that something is there representing their pain, their loss, and it's there as part of the zeitgeist of the place. And I'll give you a, a link to Berlin. If you step across the threshold of many shops in Berlin, there's, there's a line of little bricks at the bottom as you step over, which said, uh, in this shop, um, Mr. Cohen and his family lived it was such and such a shop and they were all sent at a certain date uh, to a concentration camp one way of dealing with the age of rage would be to put alongside it the age of knowledge of what had happened and mourning jonathan the rage that we're seeing today yes of course it's the rage of um the oppressed and the historically oppressed. But what we're seeing played out across electoral maps in Europe and in the US is also the rage of the once dominant. And you see this with this tremendous pushback against cancel culture, the tremendous pushback that we've seen in the US and the UK against statues being taken down, statues of slave owners, statues of Confederate generals, etc. The rage that's playing out in our politics explicitly is that of... Um, the once dominant. How do you deal with their mourning? Because there is mourning there. There is mourning of globalization. There's mourning of the dominant positions that they once had. That, that seems to me what, what we're seeing playing out in politics. I think that's another strand of the mourning that needs to be done. I think that it needs to be for the victims, but it also needs to be uh, uh, for the dominant uh, white culture that is um, has never wished for uh, 
noticing that there's anyone else that sort of matters nearly as much as the white, the white population. I think that that has to be faced and looked at, not to say that um, uh, they have no place in, uh, in a, a modern society, but you know, something about the American constitution, you know, bring us, bring us your, your poor and your afflicted, we'll let them in, we'll let them in into the US of A. Yes, that was part of the narrative, but it wasn't all the narrative because of slavery. And slavery gave immense power to the slave owners. Now, it has to be let go of. So that's very, very difficult because if you've been uh, in, 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 in the dominant clique and you've got the wealth from that um, and ownership and your pride and your position in society, to let go of that is severely difficult. What will you give in place of that? You say, well, we could actually have a more creative life. We could have uh, uh, a society that actually can integrate people. There's nothing special about the color of somebody's skin. It's got nothing to do with uh, vitality and intelligence and creative life whatsoever. These are the very, very difficult things that need to be faced again and again and again and thought about and perhaps better governments might be able to, you know, I mean, what Biden's doing in his first hundred years is rather remarkable. Um, you know, if he I could, hope he has a hundred years. I, I think it's first hundred days still. <laughs> that was my wish. <laughs> yes, exactly. You see, one, one can have wishes. Um, what a good wish. But, you know, if... Everyone can rise up uh, and have a better, a better life, you know, can be looked after better. It would be better for everybody. Well, you know, I'm dreaming. I'm a psychoanalyst dreaming on about such a thing, about having a good, loving family structure when there wasn't one. You know, in a way, I'm talking biblically about, well, there was Cain and there was Abel. You know, one son killed the other son. You know, siblings from the very beginning of you know, biblical terms, uh, there was hatred. So if, if hatred is, is, ba is baked into our psyche, and there's all sorts of very good evolutionary justifications for the competitiveness that we feel towards each other and our in-group favoritism and our out-group hatred and all these various different things, what would your psychoanalytic recommendations be at a policy level? Your, 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 your business is, is, is trying to help individuals see inside themselves. What are your recommendations for societies to do the same? Well, if I can continue my dream about that, I would like there to be um, groups established. I'd like there to be uh, groups of philosophers who might be interested in... Um, looking with groups of psychoanalysts about how to look at the philosophy of life. Um, I'd like there to be sociologists doing something similar. I'd like education, something similar. Um, economists, something similar. To establish, to re-establish uh, an idea that facts do matter, that truth does matter. Um, and 
even though all over the place um, false news is in the ascendancy, I would like to build in various uh, groups that would would speak against all that, because you know, the fakeness that is coming into various societies, I think, is profound. It can be long-lasting, and it's 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 a sort of illness. You know, most people, I think, if they're left to get on with it and they know something about their history, you want to have a creative life. But to have a creative life, to have to be able to sort of make one's dreams come true, to work hard, um, uh, you actually have to have a basis of truth. And for, the, you know, for truth to be scythed away at one's ankles, say, truth? No, I know what the truth is, you don't. And if you're an expert, you certainly don't know. I think that needs to be really, really rebalanced. And I think that those governments that are not dictatorships um, need to take the lead on that. And psychoanalysts might be able to you know, have some part to play. Um, I was involved some years ago when two of my colleagues trained in London psychoanalysts went back to South Africa. There's no, no psychoanalysis in South Africa. Uh, they'd all fled over the years. And I said to my friends, look, I'll join you once a year. Let's have a psychoanalytic conference. And we did once a year. After year three or four, we had the Ministry, Ministry of Education opening it. It was liked. But people would say to me, are you crazy, Jonathan? South Africa, it's had such torments you know, with the apartheid long decades, we need, we need schools, we need universities, we need houses, we need jobs, we need toilets. Are you saying that psychoanalysis is needed in South Africa? I said, for sure, because you're sitting on a powder keg of trauma. I mean, trauma, going back to the beginning of what I said, transgenerational trauma. The blacks are certainly uh, traumatized through the generations, but so are the whites by being in charge. Um, and now, some years later, there's a thriving psychoanalytical society, and it's doing all sorts of outreach in um, nursery schools and in kindergartens and social work, um, getting people to understand that history matters. Jonathan, what a potent place to stop. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us. I have had uh, a most uh, wonderful discussion with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it very much. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme. And join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen. And follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.